listening to Pregnancy Uncut, a new podcast dedicated to telling the untold and unspoken stories of pregnancy complications. We are your hosts, Drs. Alex Umbers and Cara Thompson. Pregnancy Uncut acknowledges the Wadawurrung people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional owners of the land with which we record this. A special welcome to all our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, especially the mothers, daughters, sisters and aunties. Content warning, heads up guys, this podcast contains materials on pregnancy loss and complications and it may be confronting. Well, on today's episode, we are talking all things preeclampsia, Cara. Yes, we are. I think this is a, a really important episode to do because preeclampsia is fairly common. We think about 3% of pregnancies can be affected by preeclampsia, which is, you know, might be someone you know. Um, it might be someone in your extended group. There's probably someone who's experienced it and it can be really scary um, when it happens to you. And what is preeclampsia? Oh, what is preeclampsia? So preeclampsia, it's a it's a strange beast. It's it's hard to define because it can look so different for so many different women. Um, we think of it as essentially being high blood pressure that develops usually in the second half of pregnancy. And then along with that, an effect on one or more of the different aspects of a mum's system. So it can vary so much. So the typical one is that we get something called protein in the wee. So that's why if people have been pregnant and we're always trying to grab your urine and dipstick it and test it, that's what we're looking for um, is this protein that, that picks up in the urine. But it can affect every aspect of a woman's body, as I said. So it can be their liver, it can be your brain, it can be your blood cells and your ability to clot. Um, And importantly, it also affects the pregnancy. And in fact, the more we're starting to understand about preeclampsia, the more we're thinking that it actually is a disease of the placenta. So, and that's why it exclusively happens in pregnancy. So something to do with that interaction of the placenta and the woman's body, um, all these substances are being released from the placenta and, and causing all these effects on the women. And they can also cause effects on this growing little bubba. So we often see babies growing quite small. We often find that they need to be born early, either because mum is so unwell or, or baby just isn't growing and, and needs it would be safer for baby to be on the outside rather than in the womb. So as I said, it's, it's a complex condition um, and it's a scary condition because it can lead to eclampsia. So preeclampsia is all of those symptoms and, and signs and occasionally it ends in eclampsia, which is a, a fit or a seizure. And so that's, as you can imagine, a, a really terrifying event for, yeah. for mums and, and of course for partners and, and health professionals looking after a woman when that happens. It's one of the, I guess, big obstetric emergencies, isn't it, yeah. that you, you learn about even back at mid-school? Absolutely. We all we do the drills, we do the practice, um, and we hope that we don't have to deal with it too many times in real life. Um, we're pretty lucky in Australia. We've got, you know, amazing amazing health resources and we have a lot of work into trying to prevent and predict eclampsia and preeclampsia and as a result you know it's very rare for a woman to um, become extremely unwell or or die of of preeclampsia though it does very rarely happen but in other countries just across the ocean it's a very different picture Mm. and it is one of the common um, causes of of mums and babies not making it in pregnancy. Yeah I actually remember doing a ward round with some obstetricians when I was working in Papua New Guinea as okay. a researcher and there was a, a young woman who had had you know, a stroke secondary to her yeah. eclampsia and she she was just going to be a lifetime hospital admission yeah, because she was so disabled. Um, yeah. I mean, that's the extreme end. In, in Australia, you mentioned um, pre- predicting and preventing, mm. but often it is it just comes up. Out of the blue, doesn't it? It, it? it can and it traditionally always has and we haven't been very good at predicting it other than some risk factors, you know, if you fam- have a strong family history of it, maybe if it's your first barber, things like that. But 
there's so much research going on. It's amazing. A lot of it's coming out of Australia and Melbourne in particular about different tests that can try and predict our risk. So most people have heard about the tests that we offer that you can choose to um, assess the risk of having a baby with different chromosomal or genetic problems. So they're developing and starting to offer tests to assess your risk of developing preeclampsia in the pregnancy, which is very cool. Um, the question then, oh, well, what are we going to do about that information? Because it's not something that we're then very good at preventing. So um, we have aspirin, um, which a lot of women we do recommend they take depending on their risk factors. Um, but even even then, it's it's preeclampsia is not something that we yet know how to really prevent or certainly to treat. We're just looking out for it. And then when it does come, we're trying to keep everyone safe, mum and baby safe for as long as we possibly can in the pregnancy. But ultimately, um, the only real treatment or cure for preeclampsia is to deliver the bubs, deliver that placenta, um, and then that will um, solve the problem. So there's a lot to work on. Um, and in the meantime, there's women like our guest um, coming on today who's going to tell her story. Um, Lucy will take us through what it really looks like to live that experience of preeclampsia because currently we we haven't fixed it. It happens every day in a maternity ward um, in Australia and it's it, it can be really frightening and it's it's important to learn about it and to hear how it affects women like Lucy. Absolutely. And Lucy, in fact, approached us to share her story. She developed some symptoms of high blood pressure and preeclampsia at 28 weeks and went in for her antenatal appointment and basically never left hospital. Oh, God. So, yeah, I think she's well-placed to tell the story from her perspective. So let's hear from her. Let's hear it. Good morning, Lucy. Morning, Alex. Thanks for joining us today. That's Okay. Now, you're here to tell us your story of severe preeclampsia and preterm birth. That's right. Some of the stuff will be pretty heavy going, I imagine. Why is it that you want to share your story with us? Um, Well, I think that um, the time that I spent in hospital um, before I had my daughter, Sadie, um, really gave me a fright. It wasn't something that I was ready for or expecting, and um, when I was in that position, I didn't really know where to go for information, who to talk to, um, and I feel like there were experiences that I had that perhaps people could learn from. And so I guess I thought when you when I heard you were doing this podcast um, that if you know somebody might like to hear my story, then if there's other people out there in my in the position that I was in, that Perhaps it would give them some information or some solidarity, something to listen to and think I'm not the only one who's done this or been here and that it will be okay. Um, and as I said, something maybe for other health professionals to listen to to think about the way that uh, the experience is for the person who's in it. Yeah, yeah bringing the human side and, yeah, um, yeah welcome to the village. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So take us back to when you first found out you were pregnant with Sadie. Yeah, uh, I was very happy to be pregnant with Sadie. I was studying at med school, as you know, um, and I it was a very easy time. It, I, I didn't find it difficult to fall pregnant. Um, I I'd had a very uneventful sort of first trimester. Um, all of the screening was clear. Everything had been very uh, boring, really. Um, I, you would have, I could have easily forgotten that I was pregnant at all. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it was. I was. I felt really lucky in that sense. And I was busy with um, what I was trying to do with uni and things, so I just ticked along um, as if nothing with it. Yeah, nothing was wrong. It was yeah. perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And you had your morphology scan about halfway through the pregnancy. How was yeah. that? Yeah, it was fine. Everything was normal. Um, we were we were so happy. And I, I think I felt at that stage, well, like the baby's done everything it needs to do. It's it's developed things. All the scans are fine. Now it just has to grow. And, um, yeah, I got on with trying to study for my final exams and, um, yeah, just get ready ready for the baby, I guess, eventually. Yeah. And towards the end of your second trimester, how were you feeling physically? Yeah, I felt I felt fine. I I, I don't looking back. I think maybe just right before um, I became unwell, maybe I started to feel a little off. But I 
I really had felt completely fine and um, it wasn't, yeah, at the first midwife appointment I went to, I had a little bit of swelling in my feet um, but my blood pressure was normal and my, they tested my urine, that was fine and um, they just said, oh, some people have pregnancies like that, um, don't worry about it. So I didn't <laughs> and um, I felt, yeah, I felt completely fine. And some of those symptoms you described around swelling, fatigue, discomfort, um, having long afternoon naps, mm. I guess, are, are pretty non-specific, and and one could be forgiven for putting them down to pregnancy. Yeah, and I think they really only became truly prominent, you know, right before that first appointment. That first appointment came and went, and then it was the sort of first appointment that you go to as a, I guess, a pregnant person to have the baby measured and all of that sort of stuff. When um, just in the week before that, perhaps I'd started noticing that I felt a bit more unwell than what I thought was normal for a pregnancy. But at the time, I didn't really think much of it. I just thought I was unlucky and having a pretty crappy time. Yeah. <laughs> And you went in again to the clinic about 28 weeks. Can yeah. you tell me what happened at that appointment? I'd been a bit swollen. I'd had a couple of really long naps and I'd said to my husband, oh, I just, I'm not sure I feel right. And he said, oh, do you want to go to the doctor? And I said, no, we've got an appointment coming up. We we're actually in Sydney. We'd gone up to visit my grandparents, so I didn't want to go to the doctor up there. And the midwife appointment was the morning that we flew home. So we flew home and um, I went straight into the hospital for my scheduled appointment. And when I got there, my blood pressure was really high. It was 170 on 110 or something like that. And um, the midwife said, that's okay, you know, it, you've got high blood pressure, but um, we'll just do a few extra tests. So I had my urine checked um, and it had protein in it. And then they said, oh, well, we might need you to do stay and do some monitoring. And I said, that's fine. So they did my blood pressure a few extra times. Um, it was still quite high. So they gave me some medication and they checked on the baby and said the baby was fine. Everything was all right. And, um, but they said, I think, I think you should stay overnight in hospital. Yeah. yeah. And with the high blood pressure and protein in the urine, the doctors and midwives were thinking sort of preeclampsia. They still they still called it gestational hypertension at that stage because I, well I don't know you know that I guess they weren't too concerned they hadn't really given it enough time I don't even know if they I can't even remember if they'd done bloods or anything by then but that night um, I did stay in hospital and I had a couple of met calls which are sort of the um, emergency sort of response to my blood pressure being too high and sort of within 24 hours I was on maximal medical therapy um, so I had as many all, all the different medical tablet agents you can have to manage your blood pressure and um, yeah I, I guess they were a little bit more worried by then and starting to talk about preeclampsia but yeah. um, I did go home um, at that you know maybe a couple of days after that and uh, so I was in hospital for about 48 hours and I went home until the next day. So they said, go home overnight and come back to clinic tomorrow. And when I got back to clinic, I brought my bag because I didn't feel well and things weren't, didn't feel in control at all at home. And um, sure enough, my blood pressure was too high and I, I, I stayed in hospital again. Yeah. yeah. And when you were sort of admitted to hospital, what was the sense from your healthcare professionals about what your stay might look like? That second time that, you know, when I came back with my bag, um, they didn't even really keep me in the clinic. They just put me straight up on the ward and um, we sat there for a few hours without anyone really telling us what was going on. And then a doctor came in who was from the neonatal, a neonatal specialist and um he came in and sat down with me and my husband and said, um, I'm here to talk to you about the fact that they're expecting you to have a baby in the next few days. And they said, um, he said, have you ever, have you and your husband talked about what you might do if your child has a disability? Wow, just drop that bomb. Yeah, and it, it really, um, it, it gave me a big fright. And I, I... Like I was 28 weeks pregnant. I hadn't bought anything. I hadn't prepared anything. My house didn't look like there was going to be a baby there. Nobody had even talked about that side of things. Um, and 
my husband didn't manage that at all. He like he just looked at the doctor and said, you know, I'm not I'm not sure I can talk about this right now. Yeah. Yeah. It, you barely had time to sort of be informed about what, what the situation was, let alone time to yeah. accept that. Because with preeclampsia, if it is uncontrolled, really the only way to protect mum from the severe side effects of preeclampsia is delivery of the baby. But yeah. Lucy's position was really tricky because the baby hadn't had a third trimester and no. so hadn't developed or grown to, you know, get that baby to a stage where where everyone was feeling safe about her arrival. Yeah. I think that the in that in that first sort of 24 hours everybody was worried about me but then nothing happened the baby wasn't born um i i must have i just stabilized my blood pressure came under control and then then began the next you know 3 weeks or so of my life where i just became like what felt like a vessel to grow the baby um as much as possible before it was born, yeah. And how was Sadie growing? Terribly. <laughs> um, when they So the first scan that I had in the clinic that day was just a bedside scan that I'm, I'm sure other pregnant women will know um, where they just check over quickly. Um, but I had a formal ultrasound uh, the next day with a, with a radiologist and the baby was way too small. Um, she was... Um, much smaller than she, I think they said something like below the second centile and she was disproportionately small. So her head was big and her body was small, which they told me meant that she wasn't getting adequate nutrition, which um, I learnt is a symptom of preeclampsia. Despite being a, a medical student, I had very little knowledge about the condition and um, really felt quite lost in all of the medical jargon, despite it being something that I was already familiar with. So I hate to think how it would have felt for someone who didn't have any of that knowledge background. And over your long stay in hospital, Lucy, what did the days look like? I, I, they were, they were so boring. And I, the first few weeks I continued to study. I was really determined that I was, you know, I was only eight weeks out from my final exams. It was terribly inconvenient at the time. And for the first few weeks, I continued to study, thinking maybe maybe I can do it all. Maybe I can manage to finish my exam and have a baby and, you know, maybe the baby won't be born. Maybe if she's born, she'll be in the special care nursery and someone else will look after her. I really underestimated the toll that it would take on me and the difficulty of having a baby in the nursery. Um, but I just, I couldn't stand it. Like I said, I felt like... I was just this vessel that everybody wanted to keep an eye on, not because of me, because of the baby. And I, I did laps. I, some days they wouldn't even let me walk across the road to go and get a coffee. You know, like they just, I couldn't do anything. So you're really bound to the ward and um, passing time. Yeah, yeah. And they did the CTG, the monitoring of the baby, every day, sometimes twice a day. And because she was so small, you know, CTG monitoring um, with the little discs on your belly that listen to the baby's heartbeat, they're, they're designed for bigger babies, you know, after 32 weeks or something like that. And Sadie was small even for her gestation, so it didn't ever work very well. It wasn't a very good way of checking on her, but it was the best they had. And so sometimes that monitor would be on for hours and hours and they would come in because, you know, they wouldn't be able to hear her heart rate properly or she'd moved around and... I just hated it. I was so stuck and, yeah, I just couldn't stand it. And mentally this wasn't the third trimester you had hoped for. No. What what sort of toll was it taking on you? I, I felt like, um, you know, it was very repetitive. Every day they would come in and ask the same questions, do you have a headache, do you have this, do you have that, you know, and... And I would say no because the whole time I'd felt really well and I guess well in the sense that I hadn't had any of the symptoms they told me I should be having. And I I just felt like they kept 
looking for an excuse to take the baby out. And I wanted them to find one because I felt like I was clearly doing, I guess in my mind I started thinking, well, I'm doing a really terrible job at what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm not being a very good pregnant person. I'm not being a very good mother to this unborn baby of mine. And, you know, nothing I seemed to do made a difference. So I thought, well, like, if I can't do what you're asking me to do, then like the baby's not growing, so why not just get it out? Yeah. And so that narrative of I'm I'm not a good enough mother started quite early. Yeah, on in the admission, very much so. And in terms of risk factors for preeclampsia, we know that women in their first pregnancy are more at risk than anyone else. But did you know anyone? Uh, in your family that had experienced something like this or? No, I, I had no family history or anything. Um, I The other thing is if you've not been with your partner very long, but I'd, I'd been with my husband for 10 years already before we fell pregnant. I The only other risk factor that they told me that I had was that I was overweight and I, I wasn't very overweight at, at that stage and that really just it just annoyed me even more because obviously it was something I couldn't change in the moment um, now or you know, in the future potentially and I just, I don't know, it just made it even more annoying that it happened to me and that there was nothing I could do about yeah. it. Yeah, and that sense of powerlessness mm. that you describe is, yeah, palpable, imagining you on that ward just doing <laughs> laps and watching Netflix. Yeah. How did your husband deal with the admission it was so hard for him because, you know, I, I went back and forth to birth suite a number of times when my um, condition deteriorated. Either my blood tests were bad or um, I got a bit of pain at one point. Um, I, I actually went back and forth to birth suite six times before I had a baby. and In the sense that they thought, oh, maybe this is the moment. Yeah. And, yep. and so when, you know, the birth suite has higher monitoring, you get your own midwife. So, you know, they would say, oh, things things are looking a bit sus. We might just, we, this might mean that you need to have a baby. So we'll send you down to birth suite and monitor you more closely down there. And then I'd sit on this uncomfortable bed. I'd call Paddy, my husband, and he would come in. And he'd sit there and sometimes it was the middle of the night, you know, and um, we'd do all that and then they'd say, oh, no, it's okay, you've got better or things look better, you can go back to the ward. And Paddy would just look at me and we were like, well, so am I supposed to go to work today? Or, you know, like he was, meanwhile, that I was just in hospital all day, he was doing everything else, you know, he was at home by himself, going to work every day, just trying to manage the uncertainty of whether or not I was going to have a baby sooner rather than later and also dealing with all the family and friends. You know, people were calling all the time and people, oh, we won't talk to Lucy, you know, she might she might be worried or, you know, we don't want to bother her. So they just bother him and that, that wasn't easy for him either. You know? Yeah, I think we really underestimate the huge toll that pregnancy complications have on partners and the ripple effect through the family. Yeah, yeah, it really it really did affect him. I mean, it affected both of us in an ongoing way, but he, um, yeah, I, I, I think it was definitely underestimated amongst our family and friends how much it affected him. Yeah. When you think about the structure of the hospital workflow and having been in hospital for a long time, there are teams that change over, you know, between Mm. shifts and then between weekdays and between weekends. How did you find that in terms of um, the continuity of care? Yeah, it was really hard. And it changed weekly, I think. The consultant, so the head doctor in charge of that team, changed every week. And then on the weekends and overnight, there was different people again. And, um, you know, people would come in and and they'd talk to me like in a way that made me feel really um, like they didn't want to get to know me. Again, like I was just this, this vessel for the baby. You know, everybody was so worried about the baby um, and I was just this person who sat on a bed and waited for people to come in and tell me what was going on. It's hard to remember, to be honest. It's easy to remember the bad things, but there were certainly experiences I had with the staff who came in who um, made me feel like I wasn't really their number one concern. Yeah, yeah. 
and sometimes taking those brief moments to reach out to the patient and, and really see them as a person can go a long way, especially with someone yeah. who's in hospital for so long. And and you have mentioned previously that as a sibling, your brother spent quite a lot of time in hospital yeah. and you've been visiting him. How Did he get a chance to visit you? Yeah, my brother had a heart transplant and so before that he'd been unwell and was in and out of hospital all the time and in the evenings, the evenings were really lonely. Like Paddy would come in a lot but he also sometimes had nights where he just stayed home which was completely fair enough. Um, but my brother and sister-in-law lived close by too and they used to come in and visit and we'd get Uber Eats and sit around and you know that was a sort of situation they were really accustomed to sitting around in hospital having Uber Eats because we'd done it all with my brother and um, he said to me at one point oh you know you've had a longer this this time that you've been in hospital is the longest that anybody in our family's ever spent in hospital in one go and I was like oh well don't be ridiculous you've you've been in hospital for weeks and he was like no I've never been in hospital as long as you have now you know and that really hit home for me because he'd been really sick so you know and the fact that he'd noticed, I really cared about that. I was very grateful to them, actually. They spent a lot of time sitting around on the bed chatting and keeping me company. Yeah. Now, a little bit after 30 weeks, after a couple of weeks of being stable, things dramatically changed. Can, can you talk us through what happened that night? Yeah. I I'd been, I'd, had been quite stable for a little while. Like I, They'd let me out to go and I had, went and had a pedicure and... <laughs> bought one a couple of little premi outfits from Target cuz I had no clothes like that and that played into my mind as well about my ability as a parent I guess because I I just felt so unprepared and everybody I knew had a baby shower and everybody I knew did all these other things and I hadn't been able to do any of it and so you know to be able to go and do that really made a difference that was a, a fun day um but I Again, even I just went out for the day. I was supposed to come back after dinner and even before dinner I took my blood pressure at home and it was too high. Like things as soon as I left the hospital I just just fell apart. And so I went back and um they I had a routine scan. So I was having weekly scans, uh, formal scans to look at Sadie's growth. And um they they did the scan and he scanned, the, you know, the um, ultrasonographer did the scan and they scanned and scanned and scanned, scanned a bit more. And then he said, oh, I'm just going to get the radiologist to come in and have a look. And so he came in. And, and you know when they say that, <laughs> that um, shit's getting real. It's always ominous, isn't it? And so he came in and he took a few pictures and fiddled around for a bit and then he sort of said, oh, you know, your baby's very small. And I was like, yep. Yeah, I've been told that a few times before in the last three weeks. And he said, look, the, the flow to the baby through the cord is not very good. Um, he said, and so, you know, it's unlikely she'll grow anymore. And at some point she's she's going to become unwell. And he said, so anything changes from this point forward, you're probably going to have a baby. Yeah. And I was 30 weeks and five days, which we'd already celebrated at that point because I was over 30 weeks. And at that point, the doctors had all started getting really happy about that. So, you know. Isn't it fascinating the way the benchmark shifts and, you know, to be high-fiving each other to get to 30 weeks yeah. compared to the usual 40 weeks. It's um, it's the, yeah. interesting to contemplate. The usual 40 weeks felt so far from my mind at that point. I, At that point, I was like, I hope I get a, a live baby. That's yeah. the sort of thing that I thought about on a daily basis. Mm. And I thought about um, I thought about a baby who was alive and a baby that didn't didn't have a disability. Yeah. yeah that's what you were hoping for. That's what I was hoping for, yeah. Did they steroid load you in anticipation of your baby arriving early they to did, help yeah. mature the lungs? Yeah. So I had uh, one dose that first time that I came into hospital and then I think I had another dose uh, 24 hours later and then another one a week after that or something like that, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I I put all sorts of symptoms down to some of the medications, you know, I, but looking back I really didn't feel all that well. Like I was jittery and um, I was anxious and I don't think all of that is attributable to the anxiety of having a preterm birth. I think a lot of it was the symptoms of the preeclampsia. I just, um, 
I felt really off and I didn't realise how unwell I felt until after she'd been born and I felt myself again. So Lucy, you're just over 30 weeks. Your baby is, you've been told your baby isn't growing and it's probably not going to continue growing. And um, if anything changed, that that would be the trigger to deliver your baby. What happened the rest of that day and evening? Um, so I went back after my ultrasound and the rest of the day sort of carried on as normal. I went to bed and everything was okay and um, overnight I woke up and needed to go to the toilet, as you do when you're pregnant, and I went to the toilet and I um, the light was automatic in my bathroom, so I walked in and just sort of um, looked in the mirror and couldn't see couldn't see myself properly. I, there were sort of blurry circles, and I just I couldn't couldn't make out my face basically. And I thought, oh, that's not very good. And that had been one of the things you know that they asked me about every day. Are you getting headaches? Do you have blurred vision? You have, do you feel this? Do you feel that? And I was like, oh, yeah, I have blurred vision. So. I thought, well, that's not very good. So I went to the toilet and then I went back and called the nurse and um, she came in. She was a young nurse. She she was a grad, like her first year out of um, uni and she'd been on a few nights in a row. She'd been trying to take my blood and we'd been laughing about that. And I said, oh, I can't see properly. And she looked at me and she said, okay. She's like, it's okay, Lucy. And she just reached behind me and pushed the emergency button. And I was like, it's all right. I know it's not okay. Like I'd already text Patty and said, come in, we're having a baby. And, um, you know, as usual, all the people rushed in. It was about four o'clock in the morning. and These things um, always happen, (laughs) four in the morning. (laughs) It's always typical. So everyone came pouring in and um, doing all the usual. And they said, yeah, they just said, um, well, that's it, Lucy. You're first on the list for an emergency caesarean at eight a.m. this morning. Yeah, and and how did that decision land? I was so ready. I was I was like, thank goodness, like get this thing out of me. It sounds horrible, but it was such a. I was so disconnected from the baby at that point in time. All of this, like you know, your baby is you know you listen to those. Um, things that you listen to in the first, you know, well, I guess probably the whole way through when you're not having the things that happen to me, but um, meditation things yeah. that say, you know, you're, you love your baby, it's inside you, it's growing, it's healthy. Like I, all of that was so far from my mind at that point in time. It was like I can't do anything more about this, get this thing out of me so that someone else can look after it. Yeah. I, I was completely disconnected from my role as a mother. And so, and the next few hours weren't very pleasant. I I had to have medication, um, magnesium sulfate, which is a medication that they give to protect the mother from seizures. Um, and it's not very nice. It causes short-term memory loss. It makes you really headachy. Um, it it hurts going into the vein. Um, and they had to put two really big cannulas in my arms um, for the delivery and I had no veins left and I was very puffy by that stage. Um, and so that, that was difficult. They had to get the anaesthetic doctor to come and put them in. And um, I remember my sister-in-law saying, even your nose looks swollen, you know, like I was so, so swollen by that stage. So... Um, they, you know, they put Patty in scrubs and everybody got ready and I just lay there and they did all the stuff they had to do before the baby was born. Yep. And um, then you get transferred to theatre for the caesarean section. What do you remember about that experience given the medications were really affecting your cognition at this stage? Yeah, I, I, I just remember there being so many people. It was, you know, for what it... What it was, you know, a preterm delivery of a fairly small baby, you know, they they predicted all of this stuff and they said, you know, she probably won't cry. Um, the baby probably uh, will come out blue. You know, they said don't expect to hear anything initially. They told me that I might need to have a classical incision, which is a different type of cut of the uterus, which means that you can't have a baby vaginally um, after that. Um that was a noisy crow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a hazard at this recording yeah. studio. <laughs> um, and they said, you know, 
um, all of those things. And then the complete opposite happened. I was able to have a lower uterine segment uh, incision. Sadie came out kicking and screaming um, and bright red, you know, and she was so, yeah, it was it was incredible because, like I said, I'd been so fearful that I was going to have a flat baby. Yeah. Um, and she was a little fighter from the she, beginning. She was. Yeah, and she definitely made her presence known. And um they sort of brought her over and put her next to my face for a few minutes, but, I mean, I couldn't really do anything. And then, um, and again, at that point I felt really like, yeah, yeah, there's a baby, I get it. Like You just quite dissociated yeah, from it? it really yeah. was. And mm. I was like, oh, thank God it's out. Like just, you know, do what you do. And then the lady, the anaesthetic doctor said, I think, I think maybe you just might like to have a sleep. And I said, yeah, that'd be really nice. And I don't really remember anything after that. Yeah. And how many hours passed before you were reunited with Sadie again? It, it was almost 24 hours, yeah. So I went back down to birth suite um, after they finished the surgery and um, Pat had gone with Sadie up to the nursery and... I feel like that was very traumatic for him. He doesn't talk about it very often, but they put a drip in her. They She needed a bit of breathing support initially. Um, and it's just so much for him. Like we'd done a tour of the NICU, but again, you don't, you don't look at those babies and think that's your baby. You know, you just, you just do, you know, you just look at them and, and just think that's somebody else's problem, yeah. you know. You never expect it to be you. Yeah. yeah. And so I think that that really was quite difficult for him. But they they kept giving me that medication and I had quite a lot of pain and I just, yeah, the, the first 24 hours is a bit of a blur. And even, you know, I think because of the medication, I they came and expressed my breasts um, to get some breast milk because I'd been very... Um, very, very strong-willed about the fact that I wanted to breastfeed Sadie. So they came and did that and then they took the milk up to the nursery and um, Paddy FaceTimed me from the thing and my mum took a video, which I have, of watching them put the breast milk down the tube as sort of her first feed. Um, but I don't remember that. I don't remember, have a memory. I've, I've seen the video, but I, I don't have a memory of it happening. Mm-hmm. And similarly, when I first met her, there's a picture of me uh, in a wheelchair, sitting by her isolate, like holding her hand. But I don't have a physical memory of that. I don't have the memory of her touching yeah. her hand or anything. Yeah. Um, and how much did little Sadie weigh? 1.27 kilos. So basically a third of the size of a, a term baby. And and yeah. how how big was she when you held her? Oh, she was tiny. She... She was she was small even for her gestation, you know. She was maybe half a kilo smaller than she was supposed to be at that age. And her head was about the size of the palm of my hand and she was the length of my arm. You know, her feet ended at my elbow crease. And she was just, you know, she would have been no thicker than my arm in terms of like her actual body. It was so small and, you know, her arms and legs just sort of hung out like all scrawny. She was just so dangly she was all arms and legs and she had no nothing she was just bones um she I I I joke sometimes and say that she looked like a roast chicken because (laughs) they put her in a plastic bag when she was born that's something that they do to keep preserve the heat in the baby and all those photos she just looks really like you know all skin and bones yeah she didn't look like a baby yeah really and not the baby you had perhaps imagined you might be having had things been different not at all and and I think that that sort of feeling continued on for quite a while um the feeling that it wasn't really my baby it wasn't really the child that I was going to take home in in that sense yeah yeah you spent or Sadie spent 34 days in the nursery which is quite a long admission for feeding and growing what were those days like for you the, the early days I don't remember very well. The first real memory I have of sort of remembering the hospital time was Mother's Day. It was three days after Sadie was born. And um, I remember they brought uh, little chocolates to all of the mothers who were in the hospital because um, I was still in hospital for about 10 days myself after Sadie was born, which was a long time. 
Was that for blood pressure reasons? Yeah, my blood pressure wasn't behaving for quite a long time and I still had some liver issues um, after she was born. And um, so I stayed in hospital. They bought that, the little chocolates, and then when I walked to the nursery with my milk that morning, um, they the nurses overnight who were just lovely um, had made a little card from Sadie for Mother's Day. <laughs> and what yeah. did Sadie say? <laughs> she just It just said, Happy Mother's Day, Mum, and it had a little picture of her um, sucking her thumb because she did that from a very early age, even when she was prem. And, um, yeah, it was really sweet. But, you know, that was sort of the first time I felt like, oh, this is actually my baby, like I'll be able to take her home because – For so long, I just was like, this is a process. This is a process that I have to go through until I can meet the baby that is going to be mine that I will have control over and can look after the way that I choose. Yeah. Yeah. And once you were eventually discharged from home and were travelling back and forth from the special care, what what were those days like and, and how was the feeding? Yeah, I can't. I can't tell you what it was like to leave my baby at the hospital the day I went home. It's, I'm sure there are other people listening to this who experienced the same thing, but, you know, carrying that empty bassinet with all of my stuff in it instead of a baby um, with all of the balloons and all of the stuff that you, you're supposed to have but without the child. Sorry. We're just reaching for some yeah. tissues here. It was really tricky. Um yeah, I really, I really struggled with that. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, once again, just so hard to be faced with yet another thing that, you know, is a mismatch between how yeah. it's supposed to go and, and the reality of this complication. It really was. And, and you know, I, um, yeah, I, I left and um, I got home and you know, my house just looked the same way that it was before I left it and, it was probably a bit messier, if I'm honest, but <laughs> poor Patty had been just doing everything else and people had brought things that had just been dumped because Patty was travelling back and forth from the hospital every day too. You know, he didn't have time to spare and working. And I, you know, I, I went home and then it was such a big job. I had to express milk for a baby that didn't wasn't at home and so I'd have to wake set alarms overnight to wake up and pump for 40 minutes and get enough milk to take back to the hospital for her the next day and not dissimilar to before she was born it was all about her which you know I know it's supposed to be but when when you've had all this stuff happen to you it sort of felt like nobody really wanted to know how I was going Mm. and they would say she needs more milk, you know, you're not pumping enough, you need to do more, you need to do more. It was always more, 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 you know, and I just felt like I'd given everything I had to give and I had nothing left. And, of course, my milk supply was affected by um, the preeclampsia and all the medication that I was on and everything, and I I pumped and pumped and I set my alarm and I, I spoke to lots of other women in that hospital and I never met one who actually woke up every three hours and pumped every single night that their daughter was in hospital and I did. And, you know, they, if you didn't do it, then they just threatened you with formula, you know, which as somebody who's done an obstetrics rotation myself now, I can see why, you know, but at the same time I just, you know, it just felt like, if you did, if you didn't do a perfect job every single day, then you failed, you know. And it felt really real to me yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah, and that's a really heavy narrative to have overlaid over everything you'd already endured yeah. for your baby. Yeah, I guess. And you know, Sadie, there were so many risks to her in those early days. You know, the risk of a bleed on her brain, the risk of an infection, the risk of trouble with her bowels, and you know her um, tummy because of not feeding the right way or because she was really little. So, you know, it felt like I just felt immense pressure to do everything that I could to to prevent one of those complications, you know, the ones that were preventable anyway. Yeah, yeah. and your commitment to giving her breast milk, like it's a beautiful expression of your motherhood, I suppose, and your commitment to her. Yeah, it felt like the only thing that I had control over. So... You know, I'd be damned if I was going to let anyone else feed my baby. You know, that that's something that I could do, that I could control, that that I was allowed 
Um, and so I was like, well, if this is the one thing that I get to choose, then I'm going to do it. You bought Sadie home when she was 34 days old. How yeah. many weeks corrected was she? That's a good question. I think she was about 30, she was just shy of 36 weeks, 35 yep. and 6 days, I believe. Yep. And how much did she weigh then? Oh, that, I don't know. I should know that, shouldn't I? She wasn't two kilos. I know that because that was the rule. So when I, when she was first brought to the nursery, they said to me, she'll have to be term and she'll have to be over two kilos to go home. But neither of those things happened. But Sadie, uh, despite all the odds, Sadie was an extremely robust little girl and she had no infections, no bleeds in her brain. Um, she fed and grew Slowly, but she did feed and grow, and um, she we were almost exclusively breastfeeding when we went home. So they offered for me to take her home on a program called the Home Tube Feeding Program, where I could take her home with the nasogastric tube in situ and feed her through the tube as well. And I jumped at that opportunity because by that stage, I had very much felt like I'd taken ownership of this baby. She was mine. I wanted her to myself. I was sick of the nurses telling me how to do things or, you know, telling me when and I could and couldn't take her out of the isolate or whatever. And I was sick of having to try and go in overnight to establish breastfeeding. So I just said, yep, I'll take her. Thanks very much. And I went home. But I did definitely underestimate how hard it was to look after such a small baby in my own house. Um... She was cold all the time. I had to wear, um, you know, my husband and I walked around in T-shirt and shorts because the house was 30 degrees because she was, she had to have it warm. And um, feeding took, you know, I had about 40 minutes between feeds. By the time I um, attempted to breastfeed her, pumped more milk, put tube tube fed her and then washed up and sterilized everything and then I'd have about 40 minutes to myself before we started the whole thing again and it was truly exhausting. Mm, not much sleep going on in that routine. No, no. <laughs> Beyond the the physical needs of Sadie, Lucy, what was happening mentally for you in the weeks once she was home? It Initially, it sort of felt like it was okay to be a hot mess because, you know, as everyone is when they first get home, it's just, it is, it's messy and nobody gets any sleep and the baby doesn't, you know, behave the way you expect it to and things just take time. But as as the weeks went on and Sadie didn't grow as well as they expected and things didn't do what they were supposed to do um, as quickly as they were expecting, they started that that little narrative of you're not doing a good job just kept creeping back in. And Sadie was only gaining, you know, very, very small amounts of weight, maybe 50 grams, you know, a week or something like that. And so, you know, I, I just, because I was feeding her, I just directly correlated her weight gain with my ability as a parent. And, and so I, and I, it quite quickly became a little bit unnatural how obsessed I was with that. Yeah. I would weigh her, I would strip her off wherever we were, where there was scales to see what she weighed. And initially that, that seemed normal because that's what they did at the hospital. And then as I sort of transitioned into the usual community of mothers, um, people looked at me funny, like I was doing something a bit different and, People who are now very close friends of mine made, you know, very well-intended comments like, oh, you really care about that, don't you? Or I know she's small, but do you need to, like, see, does it matter if she's doing this or doing that? And I used to get really offended by those comments, like, yeah, it really matters, you know. But I started to think, you know, am I being abnormal? Is this not usual? And and when... Was there anything that happened that really was a bit of a realisation that things had deteriorated from a mental health perspective? Yeah, because it started like that just about Sadie. It was just me being a little bit particular about, you know, everything to do with her, who touched her, who did this, who did that, which just stemmed on from the nursery and I didn't really see as much of a big deal and lots of the other Premier mums I was speaking to had similar sort of feelings. But then... Then it started affecting me. I couldn't sleep properly, um, even when Sadie was sleeping well. Um, I wasn't able to 
switch off and I was trying to keep do it all. You know, I was trying to still do all the other things that I do around the house as a mum and everything else and I just, things were failing. The wheels were falling off. I went down to a cafe with a dog, with the dog that we owned and, and left her down at the cafe one day and my husband had to go down and fight with the cafe owner to get her back because the cafe owner didn't want to give the dog to him because he didn't leave it there. And, you know, I, I put some fruit on the to cook on the stove and I, I left it there and it burnt and I left the house and, you know, I'm just so lucky that it didn't start a fire. And I I really beat myself up about those things and I started being really negative in my head and... um. I think I I thought, no, I I can fix this. Like, this is okay. But every time I'd say, well, I'll just do more exercise. But then getting out of the house became something else that I stressed about because I couldn't do it. And I'd say, I'll make lists and I'd go to write things down and I I couldn't think of what I had to write down, you know, and it just became more and more stressful. And in the end, it, if it was affecting my relationship with my husband and he said, you know, I'm not sure, I guess he was struggling at the time too, but he probably said something along the lines of, yeah, I'm not sure what's wrong, I think you should go to the doctor. And um, I went and they did that Edinburgh scale and I just kept saying yes all of the time, it's all of the time. You know, there's like those questions like none of the time, some of the time or it was just every day, yep. Yeah, worthless, hopeless, feel, you know, sad. Do you cry for no reason? You know, and yeah, the doctor just sort of looked at me and I said, oh, and she said, oh, I think, I think you need to, I think we need to refer you on to somebody. Yeah. 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 It sounds like things had just become so overwhelming on, yeah, on the background of a really difficult journey. So it's, yeah. it's not surprising, but really unfortunate. I think I just always felt like I was such an organised together person and I never pictured myself as somebody who wouldn't be that person. And, you know, I I just thought it wouldn't matter what happened to me, I would be able to I would be able to manage it because that's how I've lived my whole life. And so it was really hard for me to accept that this had happened and that I was really not managing. But the way that the first person I ever spoke to about it at length said it to me was about she said, look, it's like, she used this really beautiful analogy of a, a cupboard full of clothes. And she said, imagine all your clothes all folded up in the cupboard perfectly. And then something, i.e. a trauma or, or a problem, like having a preterm delivery, it's just like somebody just going in and pulling all of your clothes out and throwing them everywhere, all over the room. And she said, you just can't, you don't know where to start. You know, your brain doesn't know how to put that back. She said, so you just need some time and somebody to talk to. In, in And in that part of the analogy is just picking up every piece of clothing and folding it up nicely and just putting it back in the cupboard until it's all back there neatly and folded. And I really, I really liked that analogy and I really clung to it, I guess, and I felt like it worked like that. I just pulled it all out, I talked about it. And I just packed it all away nicely. Yeah. And that, yeah. An item at a time. Yeah. And it's enabled me to be able to talk about it like I can now, you know, because before I couldn't, I couldn't talk about any of it without just bursting into tears. So Lucy, you've been through so much with this severe preeclampsia, your preterm birth and a really difficult fourth trimester. Looking back on it, what do you wish people knew about preeclampsia and preterm birth and and the struggles afterwards? I mean, preeclampsia is really common. You know, it affects so many women in pregnancy. I I think that not everybody has an experience like I did. Often it's really well controlled with medication. Often your baby's not that early. But I think, you know, when somebody you know or, or somebody, if it's you, has an early, early, an impending early delivery, you know, just being there to to talk to and, and to check in with is really helpful. You know, I felt like everybody disappeared when I became sick. They just fell off the radar. Very few people kept in touch through the whole time, especially after about a week in hospital. You know, the novelty wears off. Everyone just knows you're there and nobody really sees how you're going. And similarly with a small baby, you know, are we we didn't really receive things. People didn't come in to congratulate us. Um, 
people heard that the baby was born and said, oh, congratulations, you know, and then that was it, you know. And even I just wish people had treated us the same way that they treat anyone who has a baby and been happy for us, you know. So many people were afraid to even come and visit once she was home and it it really hurt, I guess. I wish that people, yeah, I, w- I want people to know that it's okay to talk to somebody who's had a smaller baby or a baby that's not perfectly normal just the same way that they treat everyone else and to be happy and ask to hold it and, um, you know, to buy it the same things, just be happy. And it's true, babies do come in all shapes and sizes and um, it's important to acknowledge and celebrate each of their little lives. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, yeah, I can only really think of a few people who came in and just said, oh, look at that little baby, can I have a cuddle? You know, and didn't really, didn't really, you know, sort of be like, oh, are you okay? Am I allowed to do this? You know, yeah, it just it felt very abnormal compared to everybody else and everyone else I saw with their normal-sized babies doing normal parent mm. things. Just touching on the special care nursery experience, Lucy, as a parent for you and your partner, what would you say to other parents that may be expecting or or indeed experiencing time in special care with their babies? I think if you if you know you're going to have an early baby, which not everybody does, um, if you get that pre-warning, I would strongly recommend visiting beforehand. It did make it a little bit easier to know that, where the spaces were and what what things were going to look like. Um, I I think that use the the resources that are available to you at the time. You know the the Premi Mums group and Dads group that they had while we were there were amazing, and they I would strongly recommend that people just um, do everything they can to make their journey as normal as possible. There are premi, you know, milestone cards that are like the ones that the normal mums get that have, you know, my baby breathed on its own or my baby slept in an open cot or my baby um, went outside for the first time. And, you know, try and make your journey as fun and as normal as everybody else's because at the end of the day for the majority of people, the babies do get bigger and they grow up and they go home and then you have a normal, happy, healthy baby that's your baby um, just the same as everyone else. Yeah. And in terms of couple dynamics through through the, some of the hardships of this pregnancy complication and, and early birth, what would you say to those couples? Oh, I, I feel like I'm not sure if I did a very good job of it when it was me, you know, but I think that um, I would say to just try and hold space and compassion for your partner who, um, you know, Paddy got two weeks off through the whole ordeal and, you know, he he didn't get much time to process what was going on and um, he didn't manage very well at times. And and I I just think it's as much as you can try and remember that you're a team and that, you know, you do come out the other side of it and get to do all the normal parenting things. You just have to get through that, that very... Looking back, I know it's it's hard to see it in the middle of it, but it, it is a short time and, you know, you do get to come out the other side with your baby at home together and you just need to think about the fact that, you know, your other half, whoever they may be, is, is also suffering a little and, yeah, try and hold space and time for that as well as your own. Yeah, so wise. How do you think this whole experience has changed you as a person, Lucy? I, yeah, it's a, that's a big question, isn't it? I think I, I'm really, I'm really grateful that I was able to have a baby. I, I think now that I really took advantage of it, um, I was able to fall pregnant easily and I didn't really think about what it would be like if, if I didn't have that opportunity and now I have this beautiful, happy, healthy four-year-old and I just am so, so grateful that I have a child because, um, you know, uh, having another one hasn't come for us, which, you know, for a number of reasons. And um, so just the fact that I, I have one beautiful, healthy baby makes me so happy. 
Yeah, I think that I'm more cautious. I was more cautious about whether or not we had another one. Uh, I was more. I'm more cautious about the fact that you know, about with Sadie because I'm. She just feels so precious. Um, and I think I'm a little bit more. I, I'd like to think I'm a better doctor because I've lived that experience and I've been on the other side. And um, yeah, I really think that that has changed my perspective from for the patient more than I could ever um, you read about in a textbook. Yeah, absolutely. And you touched on your special mums group um, from the special care. What what was being part of that group like for you in terms of finding your village? Yeah, I was so grateful to those those women because they all had babies that weren't perhaps weren't the same as the babies that you see out in in the community. And um, you know, when we caught up for lunch, we all had our small babies, and they all perhaps weren't doing things at the right time, or, and it didn't matter. You know, it was because we all had that in common, I guess, and. I I was really great. I'm, I still am so grateful to those women because yeah, they really heard me when I was needing to be heard and had time and space for that extra care that I needed at that point in time. And even my regular mums group, you know, I I once I engaged with them and they got used to my little baby and my funny little quirks. They they really were my village and they still are and. They cared for me at a time when I really needed the support. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we can't thank you enough for showing up today and being part of our village. Um, your story is really powerful and, and I hope it's going to bring some solidarity to other mums or other parents that may be going through something similar. So thanks so much, Lucy, for your time. Thanks, Alex. It's been a pleasure. Wow, Lucy really took us through that in such beautiful detail. Um, you know, there's very little to say after that, isn't there? She just really explained what it was like to live that experience. And I think, you know, Sadie's four years old now, the time and in, in the healing from that journey and the lessons she's learned and in, in the ability to share her journey now so openly and honestly mm. is quite remarkable. Yeah, absolutely. One thing that really struck me um, from Lucy's story is about how that that suddenness and unexpected change that can happen at any point in the pregnancy. Um, when she said, you know, she felt fine and, you know, she was still planning on sitting her exams for uni and and then all of a sudden her world was turned really upside down and, and even studying to be a health professional, she's still, you know, you can't ever really appreciate what your life is going to look like after this complication um, starts to occur. You know, those long weeks in hospital and those long, long, long weeks after baby's born as well, special care, bringing baby home. It's, it's such a long journey. I really was fascinated by Lucy's term that she used to describe herself, feeling as though she was a vessel for her baby. And is that is that something you commonly encounter with women who are on the wards for yeah. a long period of time? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's really good reason for that because, you know, we do inadvertently treat women like a vessel in a way in the sense that, you know, their womb is usually the best place to grow baby and we often put that as a, as our priority, which is usually shared by the women, of course, but at the end of the day we're, we're – we're talking about the baby, we're testing the baby, we're doing everything for the baby, but that has to come through these huge sacrifices of the mother and we just assume that they'll you know, drop their lives and stay in hospital for, for weeks and weeks and weeks and the, the amount of stress that they must put on a, on a mother would be incredible. Absolutely. And, and the fact that, of course, Lucy wanted her baby to grow and be as healthy as possible when she was born, but the stamina required to mm. stay the course and to, you know, be there for the end yeah. game, you know, it comes at a cost. Absolutely. And it, the other thing that, the other message that can be confused is that when the doctors are coming in every day and checking up on the baby and is the baby growing, is the baby okay, that can have the effect of, of saying, well, 
it's really up to you. You should be making this happen when in fact it's it's completely out of anybody's yep. control. There's nothing that being a good mum or a bad mum or in, really any of those choices that you can make will have an effect on how your placenta works. So at the end of the day, it's it's an it must be incredibly tough to just sit there day after day in hospital um, feeling like a vessel. I think it's a, a really apt term that she's used. I think from my own learning as a healthcare professional, when I think about the ongoing impact that this experience of preeclampsia and preterm birth had on Lucy's sense of being becoming a mother mm. under duress, I suppose, yeah. and and the ongoing impact on her sense of who she was as a mother and a partner and yeah. and the way she mothered Sadie and protected her, you know. Preeclampsia happens during pregnancy, but but the impacts are yeah. long-lasting, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. When she took Sadie home and she was just this tiny little tot under two kilos and and her whole experience was so different to everyone in her in her mother's group, you know. She was the one with the small baby. But what I really liked about Lucy's story was how she pointed out how that's still something to celebrate, you know. We, it's so important to still recognise those milestones and acknowledge that your journey is different, but it's still a, a beautiful journey that should be um, celebrated. Mm, and I love the way we chatted about the way she was buoyed by finding her village in yeah. the other Premier Mums and yeah. Dads group. And I think it really speaks volume about finding your network and, yeah. and your people, even even if your pregnancy hasn't gone to plan. Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully this episode helps someone going through that similar experience. out of this episode please remember to subscribe rate and review our podcast also we love hearing from you if you have feedback or suggestions email us at pregnancy.uncut at gmail.com or you can find us at pregnancyuncut.com or on instagram if you or someone you know wants to share their story with us we'd love to hear from you talk soon